Today we are going to be reading in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right. Good morning. It's a lot hotter in here than I thought it was going to be, actually. So I'm sweating. My glasses keep fogging up. Um, yeah, glad you guys are here. It's, it's interesting. We need, um, I think about 30 more people. You hit like a critical mass where funny things are funny and emotional things are emotional. But there's like a, uh, there's like a, a level at which like, there's not enough people. Do I express emotion? Do I? You can, whatever. Get up, run around. Who cares? Um, but, so here's what we're doing today. We're doing this passage and... I'm going to start off by sort of taking this passage and breaking it into two and looking at sort of the weirdness of this because perhaps you're paying attention and you see some things you're like, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, and then we're going to end up sort of getting an overview of three things, sort of the, 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 the life of Israel, the life of Christ, and the life of the, the Christians in the book of Acts, planting this church, and uh, the parallels between that because all of this applies directly to that. And I, I bring this up a lot, and I'll talk more about it in a bit, but Acts is sort of this replay of the life of Christ through the lives of the Christians. And if you've been paying attention, <clears throat> you see that. I hit that note a little hard at the end. <clears throat> and I, where my voice at? Um, and so let's pray, and let's jump into this passage. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that right now you would be present with us, that we would we would know that you're here, that you would speak directly to each of us where we are at. Let, let us hear what we need to hear. Let us hear um, something challenging, something difficult um, that contributes to the shaping of us in the image of you. And uh, let that stick with us and uh, let us build off of that as we move through this world, as we, as we attempt to establish your kingdom to bring heaven to earth here in this world. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's start right here, first half of this. Um, let's look at some of the, the weirdness here. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, kept by the, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. That's kind of where I want to focus. Uh, it, says, it also says when they came to the border of, of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Okay, um, what in the world is going on? So these, these guys are traveling, and for some reason, the places they planned on going, they can't go to, and they, they say, basically, the Spirit won't let us go there. The Spirit of God won't let us go there, but it will let us go here, so we're going to go here. And so there's something going on, some level of like spiritual discernment, and we've talked a lot about this idea of spiritual discernment, but New Testament scholars have written libraries about this text about what is happening here because if we can wrap our minds around the leading of the early church by the spirit we could probably make a lot of sense of like how we are to move through this world as well and so um and there's some things that people say okay so i'll give you i'll, I'll give you a few of the things that different scholars from different places say um 
There's a couple scholars that are uh, very, very well known that sort of say that, um, that Paul got sick and this sickness continued with him for the rest of his ministry um, uh, and later refers to it like a, a thorn in his flesh kind of thing. Um, and that's sort of how he talks about it. So there's some scholars who say he got sick and this sickness kept him from going certain places. I don't know how a sickness would let you go some places and not others. Um, but that's an idea that some people have. Um, and that's why also in verse 10, which, why don't I pull that one up here? In verse 10, if you look at verse 10 here, uh, where is it? After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. That's the first we in the entire book. Luke is a physician. Luke's writing the book. Luke shows up right here. So they say, like, if you put the sort of the thing together, like Paul got sick and called for Luke, and Luke shows up, and then they're traveling together, and Luke is taking him to different places to get treatment, whatever. Um, so that's a theory people have. Another one is that uh, there are people who say that there was this, that Paul is led by a vision. In the same way that Paul, on the road to uh, Damascus, he's meditating likely on the book of Malachi, and the, the, the throne and who's sitting upon the throne and on the throne he sees Jesus and Jesus appears and talks to him. So he, Paul is known for having these visions. So is Peter. Um, Jewish people in general would put themselves in a meditative sta- a trance while they were traveling. They had walking psalms that they would sing, passages that they would quote, and oftentimes they would have these visions. And so maybe that's what's going on here. And there's others who say that, that this is the outcome of collective discernment. As they're walking down the road together, they're talking and they're conversing. Uh, and they're trying to discern what God has for them. And while they had a plan laid out, as they're moving, they kind of discern that the Spirit of God collectively is leading them a different direction. That maybe one person says, I'm uneasy with this, and I can't put my finger on it, but here's some thoughts I have. And, and, and maybe some other people chime in, and there's this peace and calm that falls over them. Because all throughout, we've talked about this as well, all throughout the book of Acts, they've been doing this collective discernment thing. Whenever someone is getting a like a new position in the church, a pastor or a missionary being sent, they gather together, the whole church, and they sit in a circle and they discern together what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so maybe that's happening. So there's three options and there's more, but I think we have enough. I, I think it's the last one because this is a pattern that has been seen, but I'm not surprised if it's the other ones as well. Um, but for me, the last part seems most consistent uh, with the manner of discernment that they, that they regularly were using. Um, a group of believers spending time in prayer and fasting and, and, and bringing their plans and desires to God and, and sort of the, the, the spirit falls upon them and they have this general calm and comfort about the decision that they are making collectively together. Um, and the Spirit says, no, you're not going to head to Asia Minor. Instead, I have other plans for you. So let's keep reading this passage again. Uh, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel uh, of truth. So Luke tells us that not only are they constantly discerning the path of God in their ministry, but also that, yes, indeed, Paul is actually having visions, and he has this vision of this man from Macedonia. Um, And again, there's different conclusions that scholars have come to, another one being that the man from Macedonia that he saw, that he talked to, was Luke, because Luke shows up, and Luke's literally from Macedonia. Um, So it's kind of a thing where... Yeah, like, it, we could just explain this all away. It's sort of like, I, I, if, if you're talking like Christian theology, this would be what they call the Boltmannian view, right? Like, Boltmann was a guy who de- demythologizes the Bible. He pulls all of the miracles out of it and this and that. Um, and so that would be like the Boltmannian view would be like, oh, that, that vision that he had was Luke. And Luke's a physician. 
and, uh, and Luke joined them, and now it's a we thing. Um, but I would point out that all of Boltman's students turned on him and, and decided, no, you can't pull the divine stuff out of the Bible, or you don't really have a Bible. Um, and so Boltman's biggest, most, most well-known student, Kesemon, would say, no, this is legit a vision of a guy from Macedonia calling them out. It doesn't matter that Luke's from Macedonia. A lot of people were from Macedonia. It's a big place. Um, and so I actually had more to say about this passage, and I wrote like a whole other page in the sermon, but I, I deleted it last night because I got other stuff to do here. Um, but I, I think it's, maybe I'll, maybe I'll work on it a little bit next week and see if I can fit some of it in. But either way, here's what's not happening. Paul's not just having a vision and telling everybody, God told me this is what we're doing, let's go, Okay. That's not happening in the Bible. Whenever there's a vision, even Peter or Paul or anybody, they bring this vision to the community and they lay it out and they say, am I right, am I wrong, am I discerning right? Is this in line with the character of Jesus Christ? Um, Not, is this biblical? Because a lot of things are biblical that are not Christ-like. You can flip through the Bible and find anyone doing anything to justify anything that you would like to do. The goal for the Christian is not to live a biblical life, it's to live a Christ-like life, okay? Okay. you can't use different parts of the Bible to sort of block the words of Jesus collectively. And, and, and Jesus sends his spirit and plants his church, and the church discerns together these kind of things. So Paul has these visions, and Paul comes to the church, and they discern together that this is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and Paul's not just dictating and telling them what to do. So these first verses usually prompt a lot of questions for us, and, and me as well, like, Several questions I have, like the first one is, is, is very simple. How does the Spirit lead? What, how does God do this? How does the Spirit lead us um, down the path that we are supposed to go? Now, obviously, throughout church history, there's a lot of people who claim to have visions from God. I don't doubt that. I affirm that. Um, the, amount of, the amount of literature I've read about people's visions that they've had, even modern day um, uh, collective visions of lots of people, Christians in, in different places, wondering how to survive persecution. Um, Chinese Christians regularly have visions um, so that they can find the underground churches that are meeting. There's Christian, I've talked to Christians from China who say, yeah, oftentimes Christians will go out on a Sunday morning and just walk, looking for gathered Christians. And inevitably, they always find them. Um, um, the amount of, I talked to a professor who, um, oh, his last name was Nasif, I forget his name, his first name, but he was one of my theology professors, and he, he, he told me so many stories about his Muslim brothers and sisters who had visions of, of Jesus, um, and ultimately ended up um, leaving extremist wings of their religion and following Jesus out of those things. So, like, these visions happen. Um, I can't say I've had one. I've, I've had a I've had an interesting experience, but I'm not going to go into that this morning. It was for me. Um, and it was terrifying, and it was, it was eye-opening, and it sort of, it, uh, it, it shook me in a good way that helped me keep moving when I needed to. And so, like, these things can happen, and I'm sure some of you have had these as well. Um, so, what Paul is not doing is Paul's not just sitting around he doesn't wait, he doesn't, okay, he doesn't just decide, I want to go on another missionary journey, and I'm going to sit down uh, every morning, crisscross applesauce, and do my chants and meditations, and say, tell me where to go, and tell me what to do. That's not what Paul does, that's not what any of them do. What they do is, um, 
they make a plan of where they want to go and plant churches, and he gets a companion group together, and they leave. And as they're traveling, as they're walking the path, things get adjusted and things change. We have to remember that these guys had already been walking when he had these visions for 300 miles. Here's a bit of a map. So right here on that red X is where we meet Timothy last week. Um, Timothy's going with them. And they try to go up through Phrygia into Bithynia up there. And they can't get there for whatever reason. We just talked about that. Um, and so they traveled over up to, up to sort of Philippi, Neapolis, around up there. Macedonia is up there. Um, that's what that Nia is on the end. Um, and so they've already traveled about 300 miles. So it's not like they're sitting around waiting for God to lead them. They start doing the work. They leave. They just go and start doing the work. And as they're doing the work, God leads them to the work they're supposed to do. A lot of people sit around and, and, and uh, email their pastor and say, I don't know God's plan for my life. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Well, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm waiting. And? Oh, I'm reading books. And I'm, uh, I'm praying a lot. And those are great. Reading's awesome. Praying is super good. Uh, the things you're doing are really important. What are you doing, though? Are you doing anything to serve God at all? Well, no, I'm sort of waiting for God to tell me what to do. That's not what these guys are doing. That's not what anyone in the Bible is doing. They, they leave to do the work, and God guides them the whole time. Um, and we have to remember like, how far these guys have been traveling. God, and the point is this. God is not found in books. We have a generation that, that is trying to find, like, to make intellectual sense of God. And, and I think all that's important, and I do that work as well. But God is ultimately not found in books. God is found, um, he's very specific. He's found uh, in the prisons. He's found amongst the poor. He's found amongst the oppressed people. God is already there doing the work. And hoping that you will just come out and join what God is doing. Um, the work of God is not in a book. The work of God is Jesus. If you want to know God's will, you have to start following Jesus. Start doing the work. So instead of picking up a book, maybe you'll pick up a shovel or a hoe or a rake or a paintbrush um, or a stethoscope. Like you'll do the work of loving people and serving people, bringing healing um, and if you want to know God's will, you have to start following Jesus. Start doing the work in whatever capacity that you can, being the faithful presence of God and settling, into, uh, settling sort of setting the table for, for whoever will show up. Trusting that God is working through it because God is working through you. Um, if you think God needs to be somewhere doing some work, if, you, if you're praying for God to be somewhere doing some work, the best way you can pray for that is to go there and do that work while praying for it. Um, because if you were there doing the work, the body of Christ, which is you and, and I collectively together, is there doing the work. The work is not to sit and just be as, as holy and righteous as you can and to wait for God to direct every moment of your steps. And, and oftentimes, we work this into everything. This is how we think the Bible is written. That Paul just closed, like everyone in the Bible, is just closing their eyes, grabbing a feather and just writing. And then they read it like, wow, look at this. I never knew this about God. That's not what's happening. Like, they're working. They're on the road. They're doing the work. And Paul also never goes by himself. And I think that's vital. Paul is not going by himself. Uh, he always takes companions with him, always in the company of others. Um, in historic Christianity, this has always been a thing. You can't do the work of God by yourself. It takes the body of Christ to do the work that the body of God will do. Even in, at the beginning of church history, Tertullian, one of, the, one of the very first patristic fathers, he says this in Latin. He says, unus Christianus, nos Christianus. And that basically means one Christian is not a Christian. Uh, 
an individual in a field somewhere is not a church, is not even really a Christian according to uh, the early church fathers. Even modern theologians like Kesemon that I mentioned earlier, to be saved is to, like to be a Christian is to be in the church. That's what you were saved into. It's a new people. It's a new way of being. It's a new life. It's a whole new way of, of existing. It's communal. It's not individualistic. Um, and so the goal is this communal salvation thing. By yourself, you cannot do the work of God by yourself. That, that is not how we are given to do the work. Uh, the body of Christ is supposed to be with you. You are just one limb of the thing. You can't get an accurate view of God all by yourself. You need the reflection of God in other people to fully understand. You can't even understand yourself by yourself. You can look in a mirror, but all you can see is like the front of you. You need other people to speak into your life and say, hey, um, you're wonderful and I love you, but sometimes you're a real jerk and I have to tell you about it, right? Like we need those people. We don't fully have a picture of ourselves. So one Christian is not a Christian. There is no solitary Christians. We live and grow in communion with others in the body of Christ. Most of the time, the voice of the Spirit will come from the mouth of your brothers and sisters. Most of the time, that's how this will happen. Um, it will come through the presence of those with whom we walk and talk uh, with and, and, and as we pray and live together with others. There, so, so there's, these are like some of the ways that the Spirit leads through the wandering and, and through the, the, the communion with others. Through doing the work, God will continue to lead as you're doing the work. You're, if you're doing the work of God, you're not going to wake up and be like, oh, I shouldn't have done any of this work. No, like you're doing the work and God will continue to lead. Bring people along with you. And the other question that sort of rises up as I read this is like, why were they sometimes denied? And honestly, we don't know. We are given nothing. And I think that's on purpose. Because Luke knows that he's writing for a vast church that will have many trials and will not be able to do a lot of the things that they want to do and feel that they need to do. And they will feel like failures. And Luke wants them to know, oh, this is totally normal. Christians are constantly trying to follow God and do these wonderful things that God wants them to do. And it doesn't work out. And there's a reason for it. You just don't always get to know what that reason is. You don't get to know it all. But what is clear is this. And I find this very interesting. Whatever it was that stopped them, whether Paul got sick, whether there was some kind of legal problem that they couldn't go north into Bithynia, whether, like, whatever it was, they understood that blockade to be the Spirit of God working, like, speaking to them. And I think that's important. Like, we expect God to speak to us. I, I, I don't know how you expect God to speak to you, but sometimes it has to be this big, grand thing or from the mouth of, like, a pastor or a theologian or a book that you read. Some, it's like something interesting like that, but oftentimes it's just like, nope, like you just can't do it. You run out of money, um, things fall apart, the church fails for whatever reason that existed for a blink of the moment, like a blink of an eye, a, a moment in time, and that's what it was for, and then it's gone, and it should, it's not meant to stay, or you weren't meant to go there, you weren't meant to do that thing. So what is clear is they interpreted whatever it was as God leading them. They assumed that at every moment God was with them and that God was directing them, that God had gone before them to prepare the way, whatever it was going to be. And so that's what it means to bring Christ into the common. We, we used to practice communion every single week. Um, and we will again. And communion, uh, that word sort of comes from this idea. I say it all the time. The common union. It's, it's Christ in the common. It's just bread and it's just wine most of the time, it's just Welch's grape juice. Um, but, like, it's just a common thing. You've been to a million parties where there's bread and there's wine. And it's not a big deal. 
But in communion, you inject Christ into it. You see Christ in the common thing. That is an exercise. That is a ritual by which you learn to see God in that thing, in that very simple common thing, like making dinner for your kids or or staying late, working an extra hour to get the work done to relieve like your, the people you work with. Or th- just the, the simple thing, fixing that thing for that person who needs that thing fixed. The very simple, common acts of living, communion helps us to inject Christ into them and say, like, this is an act of God. This is a way that I can be the presence of God, that I can, just like the Spirit of God, take something disordered and make it ordered again, take something broken and make it right, take somebody in need and feed them and nurture them. Christ is in the common. Communion is that exercise of seeing Christ in the common so that you can go outside and as you go about your day, when you're speaking to your waitress and you smile and, and, and you ask them how they are and you show interest and they feel cared, and seen, like cared about and seen, Christ in the common. You've done this a million times, but in that moment, you are Christ. And the goal is to bring that into every moment. And so this is what it means to bring Christ in the common, to inject the work of God, the leading of God, the communication of God into every single moment. Whatever it was that blocked them, it was Christ. That's what it became. Um, So I think the only way to make sense of all of this, all of this event, this leading and blocking and like, no, you're going over here in the visions, is to to look at it through that like parallel lens that I've, that I've given you guys to, to read the Bible through many times. Um, and I want to sort of like talk about that again for a second. And I want to put sort of the layers all together and help us look at this passage from about 30,000 feet. Ready? Um, so one of the lenses through which I have been studying the book of Acts and helping you see is the Christ church parallel. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's one of the most important ways that we can read, especially books like Matthew and Luke and Acts. Um, But let me start from the beginning real quick and sort of catch you up and show you what I mean. So you have this nation, this Israel, and they have this journey, and there's high points and there's low points, and it's an entire story, and it goes in circles, and they have kings that fail, they end up in exile, and they get out, and they they repent, and they are restored to another, uh, they have a new king, and they're back in the land, and then once again the king fails, and they go into exile again, and this goes round and round and round and round, Um, and this is their story, and they're wandering in the wilderness, they're entering into slavery, they're getting out of slavery, Um, but their story is all laid out. It's got its ups and downs. It's the whole thing. And, um, that is when you, when you read the story of Christ, what, what Israel has always been waiting for, like I talked about last week, um, is sort of this, this completion, like that they would become faithful to the covenant so that God would bring salvation to the world. And all they needed was for one Israelite to like live up to this covenant so that be, to be the perfect imago Dei. So the world would know what God looks like. And if the world knows what God looks like, then the world can rightfully come to God. Instead of, instead of Gentiles coming into Judaism, they can come to know God. Because things had gotten off the rails. And they admitted this and everyone knew this. And that's why there were so many sects of Judaism Throughout their journey, they had failed over and over and over again to display what it really means to be God. And then suddenly, Christ comes along. And in Christ, you see the entire story of the Old Testament. You have um, these... Am I out of the camera? I'm going over here, Michael. Um, you, you have, at the very beginning, like the story of Israel, you have the, in the book of Matthew, like the slaughter of the infants, and then you have the flight from Egypt, just like Israel had, and then you have the... Um, the passing through the Red Sea of Israel, um, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River and then 
Right after they pass through the waters, they wander for 40 years, and then Jesus enters for 40 days into the wilderness and is tempted with everything that they were tempted with. And so the life of Jesus parallels the life of Israel, except every time they failed, he succeeds. This is what they're talking about when they say he was tempted in every way as you were, but he didn't sin. He didn't fall. He adequately depicted to the world, perfectly depicted to the world, exactly what God is like. And this is, this is why Israel was created. And so Jesus ends up on the cross. He knew no sin, but he ends up on the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, my father, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So like, this is the exile prayer. This is what Israel would pray when they were in exile. So Jesus even, even undergoes all of the bad things that they went through, through mo- no fault of his own, even though they caused their own exile. Jesus didn't cause his own exile, yet he still goes through it and he suffers and he dies in exile from his father calling out, doing the exile prayers. So the life of Christ perfectly matches the life of Israel, but it's done right. He even, he even is depicted at the beginning of Matthew as David. He's depicted as Moses on the side of the mountain with like the Sermon on the Mount. That's not really a mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because it's, it's, like, it's more like a giant hill. But they understood it to be like sort of this representation of like Sinai. Moses coming down with the, with the laws down the mountain to speak to the people. And Jesus is on the side of the mountain and he's reinterpreting the law. You have heard it said this, but I say this. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He mirrors all of their prophets and he does it better. So Jesus is the one that we're supposed to be like. It used to be we're going to be like Moses. Then we're going to be like David. We're going to be like Joshua. And this is why when I was growing up in school, in like Bible school, Sunday school, when I was a kid, people would tell these stories about like, and you should strive to be like David and be brave and strong and those other things. The fact is you shouldn't strive to be like David. David screwed up a lot. He made a mess of everything. He murdered people. He raped a woman. He did terrible things. But Jesus is a better David. And that's how Matthew starts, right? He starts his, he starts his genealogy with David and says, um, this leads right to Jesus because Jesus is a bit, no, you're supposed to be like Jesus, not David, not Joshua, not Moses, Jesus. That's who you're supposed to be like. Um, and so along comes the church in the book of Acts. Um, Jesus gathers people together. He breathes on them and gives them the breath of life, right? And then there's, at the beginning of Acts, there's this ascension and then you have the church. And what does the church do when they set off? They mirror the life of Christ. Everything that Jesus does, they do. Even Everything that Israel does, they do, but they don't do it like Israel did it. They did it like Jesus did it. And so they have a temple, but it's not a physical structure. It's the body gathered together. They have a Torah, a law, a paper law, but it's not on paper anymore. It's the spirit of God in their heart. Um, And it should remain on their heart. And you discern God's will, not by reading the paper, but by gathering with the church, speaking the words of Christ, calling out to God to help you discern how to live your life. And it's interesting that ever since that day, we've been trying to put the law back on paper over and over and over when it's not supposed to be there. Um, and the church, everything that the church does aligns perfectly with the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. And so this right here, when we come to today's passage, what we're looking at is their own wilderness wandering, just like Israel, just like Jesus. And it's sort of like they did it, they failed. Jesus shows them how to do it. And then Jesus says, now I'm going to go with you. Now you do it. The whole point of Acts is to tell you that the role of the church is to be like Christ in this world, to be the presence of Christ, to live out the story of Christ in this world. That is what the church is supposed to be doing. And one of the most important things the church can do is stay faithful in the wilderness, in the difficult times. When things get really bad and really difficult, the church should always remain Christ-like. 
And I would point out, we should look back over the last year that we've had, and we should ask, has the church at large failed or succeeded? Um, I don't think we've done a great job collectively. Um, I think we've made a mess of a lot of things. I think we're much more like Israel than Jesus. And I think we need to strive to be like Jesus a lot more. Is what you're doing, it might be biblical, but is it Christ-like? Because oftentimes it's a lot more like King David than it is like King Jesus. It's a lot more like Joshua than it is like Jesus. We want the warrior. We want God to be that warrior that commits genocide and kills all the bad guys. But that is not what we have been given. We've not been given a warrior. We've been given a crucified lamb, a suffering savior, and saying this is how you were to think of God. And so the desert wilderness thing is vital. For the Jews, the best place to dwell was actually in the desert. That was where they were supposed to be. They were not a seafaring people. They were a semi-nomadic people. They always wandered in the desert. That is where they were supposed to be because that is where God met them. All the gods in the ancient world were geographical. Everywhere you went, there was a God and it stayed there and it never moved. But God calls them out of Egypt and he says, you're gonna meet me in the desert. And they're like, really? Nobody's out there. There's no, there's no cities or not. He's like, exactly. So he meets them at this Mount Sinai because he is a God who does not belong to anyone, but instead all belong to him and he travels with them. He actually goes before them and leads them. It's a God who moves, a God who is present. Um, and so the wilderness is a very important thing. Uh, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, so the Hebrew word, oh, we can, we can do the repeat after me part. So the Hebrew word for, uh, for wilderness is, so there's no, there's no vowels in the Hebrew language. It's just consonants. Um, and so oftentimes theologians are guessing of what a word sounded like. And this one they guessed sounds like midbar. So everyone say midbar. There you go. So midbar is the word for wilderness. Now, it comes from a root, a root word right at the, at the center there, DBR, so like debir. And that word means sheepfold, but it also doubles because it also means holy of holies. So it has multiple uses and other words come out of it. But at the very center of it is this one idea. It's the gathering of God's people in a sheepfold, and God is there. That's why sheepfold and holy of holies are kind of the same thing. They even had the same structure, the same shape. You'd gather the sheep in there, and the shepherd would be there with them. And so in the holy of holies is a place where God and humanity can dwell together there. The sheep has gathered the sheep there. And so there's this, at the very center of this whole thing, uh, when you say the word, you are describing in the Jewish mind the place where sheep are brought and the holy of holies where God is bringing his own flock. So the word midbar, um, in general, if it's used sort of in general conversation and not specifically talking about the wilderness, that word literally means the place of speaking. Because when you're in the wilderness, you have to rely on God. And so where does God speak? Well, he, he gathers his people together and to speak to them because they didn't have Twitter so they gather people and you speak to them there, like wherever you are gathered, like this is how this works. And so if you want to hear God speak, where do you go? Well, you wander out into the wilderness. And then you read passages like every morning, Jesus woke up, took a walk in the wilderness to talk to the Father. Uh, you, have, you have in the Old Testament that, that the, the cloud leading them by day and the pillar of fire by night through the thing that we sang about this morning, like as they move through the wilderness. That is where God meets you. Why? Well, it's very specific in the scriptures. It, it tells you God meets you there and speaks to you there because you don't have anything that you need there. You need God there. When you're in your cities, we see this. In Deuteronomy 6.10, it says, oh, dude, six, we sang this. Um, and when the Lord your God 
brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. He says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to provide all, everything that you need. And my fear is that when you have everything you need, you will no longer need me. And you will just be you. And I will be thrown on the wayside. And you will fashion yourselves in the image of other gods. And so perhaps when we build a country and it becomes very opulent, the most powerful nation in the world, perhaps God's people have a hard time actually focusing on what it means to be Christ-like because we so badly want God to look like us, but we know that he doesn't. We know that he doesn't. And so if you wanted to talk to God as an ancient Hebrew, you would wander into the wilderness and you would spend a considerable amount of time there. In great danger, by the way. It's not a safe place to be. You could get killed by the hot winds in about 30 minutes if you didn't find shade in the middle of nowhere. Um, but you trusted that God would meet you there. You're not going to hear from God speaking, uh, you're not going to hear God speak in the great farmlands or in the cities because you're too busy doing things for yourself. So Paul already has these desires. There's places he wants to go, stuff he wants to do, and a plan, and he heads off in that direction of Asia Minor, but God, but, but the wandering in the wilderness is, that's the place where your plans no longer matter, when you actually set off through that wilderness, whatever plan you made doesn't really matter. It may work out, it may not, but you can't hold on to it because God is going to do what God is going to do. It's where the wilderness is where it all falls away to the point where you don't even know what to do. You're not in control, you can't protect yourself. You're at the mercy of God and that is what it's like to stand in the holy place in the temple, this terrifying way that the prophets describe standing in the holy of holies. It's, you're terrified because you could die at any moment, and they regularly did. Um, as the sort of the, the religious folklore kind of goes, that they would wear bells around their ankles and a rope tied to their ankles when the, when the priest walked in every year to the Holy of Holies in case they dropped dead. If the bell stopped jingling, <laughs> give it a tug. Are they alive? And if not, they would pull the priest out. Um, it's a terrifying place to be, and you only live by, the, by, the, by like, they would talk about how like the, the only way I will live is if God allows me to live. All right? And that's exactly how they talk about the wilderness. In the desert, you hear God because you have to hear God to depend on him for everything. The desert is a place where you can't survive apart from direct intervention of God. So when you're in the desert, you know that you depend totally on God. If he doesn't send water, you don't drink. If he doesn't send bread or shade, you don't eat and you bake to death in the sun. So the desert, in Hebrew terms, is the place where life gets very tough, but it's, it's the place where you actually meet God and are given the path by which you will live. Yet, we do everything we can to avoid any form of wilderness travel, any form of wilderness suffering in our own lives today. Anytime anything is difficult, we cry persecution and we try to put an end to it instead of entering into it and saying, I bet we're about to hear from God and remaining this calm, Christ-like people. Non-reactive presence of goodness and love and grace. And I have to say, for the last year, um, here's some thoughts I had this week. I wrote a couple of them down. Um, for the last year, I, I feel like 
this has just been absolute wilderness. I feel like I've personally been in the wilderness. Uh, it has, I, I remember like, uh, like about five or six years ago, there was a Sunday where the roof was leaking and the AC was broken and we didn't have any money to fix it. And we were talking about, someone was like, well, why don't we just cancel service this week while they work on all this stuff? And we're like, we can't cancel service. You can't not have service. I'm like, why? I'm like, what would people do? They would just leave. They would just never come back. And then we'd go bankrupt and you'd get fired and you'd get fired and you'd get fired and I'd get fired and we'd have no, we'd have no money. We'd have nothing that we could do. We can't cancel. You can't not have a church service. <laughs> and this is, our, this is our fourth time meeting in 11 months. Like, we haven't had service an entire year almost. And we're fine. And we're here. And things are okay. I mean, they're not great, but they're okay. You know what I mean? Like, we learned a lot about ourselves. And all those parts in the Bible where I read, they're like, oh, you don't build your church. God builds your church. I'm like, I agree with that. But I build my church. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not, I, I agree with it, but I don't believe it. Like, nobody does. Like, yeah, but I have to do something. Let's see. You know, like, no, God is building his church. No matter how hard you work at it, if God wants to shut it down, he will. He, he threatens several times in the book of Revelation. He goes, hey, if you don't tighten up the screws over here, I'm going to come and take your lamp away. That means, like, I'm going to cut, that's like the ancient way of cutting the power. Like, I, he took our candle. We can't see. They cut the power on the tent. Um, like, and this is how God speaks to the people. You didn't build that church. I built that church. I led you there. I gave you everything you needed to know. I saved you. I saved them. Why are you standing up and being so proud of yourself? Why are you talking about like, you read these articles about like, the, we're, the, we're the fifth most influential church in the world or something like that. And you're like, why are you talking about this? That has nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with you. God can collapse all of it tomorrow. And if you keep talking like that, he might. Um, we can't do that. And what I've learned about is sort of the flourishing of, of God's church. It has nothing to do with our physical ability to gather or not gather in any particular way of, of service. God is going to build his church, not us. It's a regular reminder in the New Testament. And it's like, I should have known it, but I just didn't. And I don't think any of us did, but now we do. And it's, it's this wonderful feeling that like, okay, I can take my hands off the wheel and just let it, Jesus, take the wheel. Um, and I remember like, I should have learned this lesson because so many times in life I should have learned this lesson. Like 2008, there was this economic crash. Um, and like me and Sarah lost everything. Like we lost the house. We lost all of it. Um, and God took care of us all the way through. And at this point, it's almost like it never happened. But I should have learned what I was supposed to learn then, like in this really difficult time. And you all have these stories of like, I came through and here's what I learned. There are so many things that I carry with me that I never would have learned had this person not gotten cancer, had, had I not been at this person's deathbed, had I not been through this surgery, had I not gone through this and this and this and this and this divorce and, and this loss of a loved one. There are so many things that I wouldn't have if I hadn't gone through these things. And we take those things and we love them and we embrace them and we say, I learned a lot. But then we, we let it stop there and we don't apply it to the rest of our lives. Like I should have learned from financial difficulties a long time ago that like, God's going to do what God's going to do. And I don't need to have anxiety and I don't need to worry. Yet I need to learn this lesson over and over and over again. And maybe this time it'll stick. But it probably won't. Because again, we live in a very opulent place. And the more we have, the more we forget about God. 
and our reliance upon God. We all desire to dwell in the holy place where God is, where God is present and God is leading us, and we assume that that holy, wonderful place has lights and lasers and fog and it's emotional and it's wonderful, but actually that's not, <laughs> that's not where we are called to actually find God. It's in the mundane, the common, the wilderness, the scary parts where we don't know what's gonna happen, but God is present there. And saying, just keep walking. And you're like, but what's gonna happen? And you're like, I'm not gonna tell you what's gonna happen. You don't get to know what's gonna happen. Just trust me. And so that's what I had today. Um, I find that passage to be very fascinating. I think about it a lot. Uh, I want so badly to know why they couldn't go where they were going. But perhaps it's the same reason that I haven't been able to do a lot of things that I wanted to do in life. That's not what God had for me. Perhaps if you got that thing that you really wanted so badly that you went to school for and everything, perhaps you'd be the most miserable person, the most miserable version of yourself if you actually got the things that you wanted. It's probably true. And so I'm going to end there, and uh, look at this, I have, a big, I have a big red X on a page that I, I'm not going to do. Um, but why don't we pray, and then we'll do a collect prayer together, and, and, and hang out, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people, thank you for your word, I pray that it would, uh, it would hit us hard, that we would carry it with us, that we would learn to apply the things we learn in one area of our life about you to the other areas, that we would, uh, we would learn to follow you well. Um, May we, not, may we not learn these things so old in age. May we learn them while we're young so that we can, can live long lives of, of journeying with you. Thank you, Father, for all of this. In your name, amen. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're gonna do our collect prayer, written by our prayer team every week. So here's today's. And we do them nice and loud so that these guys right over here who are still sleeping, we're gonna wake them up. Ready? Here we go. God of hope, who heals the broken, be present with us. Where there is mourning, bring comfort. Where there is division, bring unity. Where there is depravity, bring wholeness. Where there is deception, bring truth. May we be a people bound together in love and faith, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Thank you all, love you all. Grace and peace, hope everybody online, I hope you're well. Have a great week.